what it what do people get out of games why are they important why do they occupy the station in some people's lives that they do why do they perpetuate as a hobby for some people and not for others and like what utility do they have Hi, this is Gary Snow from Daiku Games and the documentarian that created the Friendly Local Game Store. And part of the Friendly Local Game Store documentary included a lot of really, really good interviews, including one from Brandon Hardy right here in Calgary, Alberta. And Brandon is a bit of a, let's say, a renaissance man. He does everything from a game kind of theory to art and just a really fascinating person. And I had the privilege of interviewing him as part of the documentary. And one of the things that uh, just really caught my attention was as part of his master's thesis, he did a whole article about game theory, for lack of a better term, and the psychology behind game theory. And I really thought it was just fascinating. And one of those uh, parts of his um, thesis talked about this rat utopia. And it's a really fascinating piece about how rats um, find their own community and uh, when they don't have a purpose they've essentially die out but I'll, I don't want to ruin it but uh, Brandon can do better justice to it but it's a really fascinating topic about the importance of games in our culture and I just uh, really think that his views and opinions should be shared so it's really fascinating and it's all part of the documentary however so much has ended up on the cutting room floor just because the interview itself is almost an hour long and when you uh, start editing you really can't include it all but I think it's really worthy of sharing and it's part of the bonus features and uh, will be included as part of the Kickstarter so if you're interested there's other really good art uh, interviews that are on there that uh, are uh, not going to be included in the full documentary but they will be as part of the bonus feature so go to the link in the Kickstarter I'm also going to link to Brandon's uh, master's thesis so that you guys can actually read it for yourself because I do find it fascinating for all you kind of game nerd geeks out there that really like to talk about mechanics and philosophy of games and why we play as humans which is all kind of included as part of the documentary I really encourage you to go check out those links and uh, without further ado let's get on to the interview with Brandon. How long have you been playing uh, role-playing games? Sure. What was your first introduction to role-playing games? Yep. So my very first introduction to role-playing games was when I was probably, I want to say like 11 or 12, maybe even a little bit before that. Um, I'd moved to a new town and a friend of mine had a bunch of books and um, that he had sort of just inherited from his brothers. And we uh, scrambled through them trying to figure out what the rules meant and uh, learned how to play a fantasy role-playing game sort of kind of by ourselves. And it was kind of him and me and, you know, at any time, four or five other guys that would rotate in and out. You know, we, we never really did big, big games. Um, and I think over the course of, you know, my youth, like junior high, high school, we probably played thousands of hours of, of these games. And so, yeah. And where did you guys play? In the basement. It, yeah, my, it was actually the ideal location, in my opinion, to learn. Um, besides the books, he had also inherited this folding table that was just like someone had bought two like folding table legs and then like drilled a piece of plywood to them. And so anyone who came into the basement could like scratch up and carve and draw on this table while we're sitting around playing. And then he had like, 
you know, all his brothers and sisters had moved out. He was the youngest of six. And so we had this whole half of the basement was just one big open room that had, I think, two sets of bunk beds and like two, two or three couches and like a Nintendo in the corner and like some weights or whatever, you know, stuff that gets exiled to the basement. And we hung out there and just, you know, in the cool, cold basement in the middle of summer and just played our, played our hearts out. So, you know, similar experience to me, like basically summer, it was not even, you didn't even have to say anything. It was yep. just like you headed, I headed over to my friend Dave's place yep. in the basement and nobody cared because we were in the basement and we yep. had a makeshift chalkboard table that we drew out the maps and everything on. Nice. But it was just kind of very similar as far as you just played all summer yep. long before like you were expected to have a job. Yeah, exactly. Well, and just like anything else, like I feel like that whole idea of exiling things to the basement. The weights go down there. The old record player goes down there. Uh, send the kids down there with those old books, whatever. you know. And I feel like for most kids, at least for me growing up, it was either the basement or the garage. That's where you hung out because that's, that's the free space that you can kind of exploit for whatever you want. And so when you think about uh, those times and your first indoctrination into role-playing games, I guess, did you ever think that you'd be playing them as an adult or did you... Yeah, I mean, like, you never really think of it with that sort of foresight, right? That anything that I'm doing now, like, if you ask me, do you think you'll be doing it in 20 years? It's like, well, now I have some clear vision of what 20 years from now looks like. But when you're 12 years old, you, you, you don't know what five years from then looks like. And especially, like, we had just moved to a new town. The whole concept of, like, well, life can change so dramatically from one day to the next. You might be in a whole different place doing with different people, doing something completely different. And so I didn't, no, I didn't think so. I think that uh, you don't measure the impact that something has on your life until after you can look at it in retrospect. And when you think about life lessons, perhaps, that you learned from that time, now as an adult, what do you think? Uh, it's impossible for me to ex extract the life lessons that I learned from just engaging in that form of play with my friends. Uh, it's impossible for me to extract that from the other life lessons that I learned in that basement. Do you know what I mean? Because that wasn't the only thing we did down there. We'd play, we'd talk, we'd do other things. And we had so many just impactful developmental moments where you learn how to, you learn how to talk confidently to someone else. You learn how to uh, synthesize information and create an idea and then project it in a way that makes sense to somebody else. And, you know, you learn how to have, be emotional in front of your friends, whether you're playing or whether you're just down there talking about life or talking about girls or talking about TV, you know. Um, so th that's a hard question for me because, you know, that was where I spent most of my youth. And how do, you, how do you pinpoint, oh, this is when I learned that life lesson. It's like the, the sum total of all the things that you get out of an activity is, is wrapped in the context in which you engage in that activity. And so, yeah, that's hard to say. If I had to take a crack at it, um, I it was pretty clear to me really early just how much uh, I personally gained just in terms of being able to communicate effectively. Um, because I was like, I wasn't like a super shy kid, but I was like, I was a small kid. I was, I was like shy to some extent. And I had problems like, talking to people that I wasn't super familiar with. If I was, if I kind of knew who they were already, it was easy enough. But when I was young, then it was, it was hard for me to like talk to people because I would just have anxiety about it. And um, tabletop role-playing works the way that it does because you have to, 
you as the player, or, or if you're the, the game master, I guess either way you're playing, you have to think about what something that you want to happen in the game and like imagine and project ideas and kind of run through different scenarios in your mind quickly enough to make a decision about what to do and then you have to communicate to the other players of the game, this is what I want to do and this is how I want to do it or whatever. And, uh, and I think that being forced to think that way or, or a better way to say that is because I was given the opportunity to practice thinking that way through the game, uh, I think I overcame that really quickly. And I think it served me really well both in terms of when I get back to playing and just in my normal life, like just being able to have a, sit down and have a conversation with somebody. So, Did you tend to be the DMGM? No. I was terrified of that level of involvement because it's, it takes so much knowledge. It take, you have to know, if you don't know the rules inside out, you had better know the books inside out so that you can find the rules like on, on, a, on, a, on a quick turnaround. And that was always really hard for me because, you know, when I say my buddy inherited some books, I mean like he had stacks of books that all related to one, one role-playing system. And uh, yeah, I just could not understand how he had this sort of pseudo-encyclopedic access to where everything was or what the rules were. I know now that there's some of the information that he sort of just fudged because once I started uh, DMing and GMing, uh, then you learn that like sometimes you just sort of have to, it's more important to just get through the moment than to, than to disrupt it by having to look stuff up. And, and it disrupts the immersion if you have to do that too, too much. And that's why it's important to know stuff, but it's also why it's important to be able to think on the fly quickly enough to say, well, just roll a d20, let's see what you get. And uh, so yeah, I was always terrified of that growing up. And I think it, that sort of de facto fell to the responsibility of the friend that owned the books. His name was Hugh. Uh, he's still a friend that I play with all the time. Uh, not as much in person because he lives in Saskatchewan, but we play regularly. And uh, yeah, so that was him. And then I had another guy, another buddy whose name was Corey. And between the two of them, they ran just about every game I played up until my 20s. And uh, from that point forward, that's when things sort of shifted. And that's when I sort of developed the confidence, I guess. I had the, I think I had the knowledge base earlier, but I had to develop the confidence to be able to sit down and say, this is what the world looks like. This is what's happening around you. What do you want to do? And uh, yeah, it definitely takes some warming up to get there. I think for most players, but I, I really admire the people that get in and learn a system and then just decide after a week or two that they're like, okay, I think I'm ready, let's try it. And the bravery that it takes to just kind of like know that it's not gonna be perfect and then see what happens. And so let's uh, now skip forward to uh, your university years. Yeah and uh, maybe lead us up to where you actually did your thesis, like, and talk about your education and then how it culminated in that. Sure, yeah. Um, I did a, an education in the arts. So it's, I feel like it's so different than any other degree that you might get because of the pressure that it puts on you to sort of find your identity uh, or to dig up what your identity is, uh, that you have to be really consciously aware of kind of everything that you're creating and making and doing um, in a way that like if I was doing a math degree, maybe that's not so important. You could argue maybe if I was doing a philosophy degree, you might do this, the same sort of like overthinking about who you are and where you came from and what you do. But uh, for art, it's like, okay, well, you're going to make some art. What's it going to look like? Why is it going to look like what you just decided it's going to look like? Where is that coming from? What life experiences impacted you 
that that's what you're making art about. And, you know, just like anybody else going through my undergraduate degree, like I didn't know who I was, at least to the extent that they were looking, that my advisors were looking for answers. Who do you think you are? You know what I mean? And so it's like, uh, well, I, I don't feel like I'm a color field painter. I don't feel like I'm a, you know, like an abstract expressionist. What's important to me more than anything else is the people in my life. Like that's always been hands down true. And so I was always really interested in portraiture and like learning to paint people, learning to draw people and building up even just towards my degree. That was something that I, I had to think about and learn and practice a lot because, you know, if you're going to sit down and do something creative, you're not just going to do it because you just love creativity so much. You're going to do it because what you're making has some level of importance to you just out, just out of the gate. And so for me, it was always people. And it was always, I was always doing portraits of people that I knew. It wasn't like sit down and find like a stranger on a bus and then draw them like a marble statue. It was like doing, doing pictures of people in places that I liked. And so, uh, so kind of moving forward through my undergraduate degree, that was sort of when the seeds sort of started to get planted about like what kind of art defined me as an artist, which is like this whole aspect of my life. And ultimately, you know, where that started was I did these like a whole series of these black and white images of people gathered in rooms and, and it always sort of had um, an element of storytelling to the picture that there's, you know, if you're doing something that's in any way realistic as an artist, I think that there's some idea that there's a narrative there that if you can extract, even from a simple portrait, if you can extract enough about like the earrings somebody's wearing or the, or the type of clothes they're wearing, then you can, you can know something about that person or that character in that picture. And so the same is true if you have a group of people, what knowledge can you extract? What story can you extract or narrative can you pull out of a picture of a bunch of people in a room? And so in, in the work that I was doing in my undergrad and, and that followed, uh, it was always kind of narrative based in that, like I wanted the viewer to be able to kind of notice these different moments that said something about the interaction or the relationship between these people in, this, in, in these paintings. And so um, some of them revolved around like explicitly around gaming, uh, like specifically like playing uh, role-playing games. And some of them were just reading a book. Some of them were sitting around in a group just telling stories. And uh, I just always thought that that was, I guess it was part of what I felt gave my life uh, meaning and joy was those moments where everyone's together and we're, and we're engaged. Like we're, we're talking to each other, we're feeling things out and we're like sharing things and expressing emotion that like, you know, whether it's telling a story of something that happened or coming up with a new story and pretending something together, it's kind of all the same activity in my mind that you're just, you're using your minds to just fuse together into one weird moment of excitement and energy and fun. So that's kind of what happened for my undergrad. And then coming forward into my master's, it was, it was that same kind of sensibility of trying to define who you are as an artist, but on steroids. Because at that point, you're expected to be a professional already. You should know, you should already have a body of work. You should already be able to sort of like talk about your art or particular series of your art as like, you know, one thing that embodies an idea or, or a group of ideas that are all related to each other. And then from there, it's like, okay, well, that's what you've done. Is that still who you are now? And what are you going to do next? And is it going to be more of the same? Or are you going to innovate and change and do something else? And there's sort of a pressure to innovate further because they want to see that you can change and adapt and grow through new ideas. And so 
huge part of any master's studies is reading more than anything else. And so even though I was in an art degree, I found that I was reading constantly. So it was like books and articles and magazines. And um, I hadn't really keyed into like the idea that I was a nerd. Do you know what I mean? That like I am and I always have been, but like I never like constructed my identity around it. It, it never was just like the, the total uh, summaration of who I was. Um, and looking back, I can see that other people probably cataloged me that way in their minds, right? But it's like, you know, going to high school and stuff, it's like, that's all you know about somebody. Oh, those are those kids that play D&D in the library. Those, they're nerds. And so that was me. But it's like, ah, they don't know anything else about me besides that. So of course they think I'm a nerd, but I also know that I do X, Y, Z. And so uh, I had never really thought of the, the idea that, that's, that that was a major component of my identity until people asked me to construct what my identity was for them. Well, Brandon, what are you then? And so it's like, well, I guess maybe I am a bit of a nerd. Okay, sure. Because you can't have as many video games and role-playing games and board games and, you know, I've got a backgammon board in the corner. Like, no, like why? Um, unless you're a nerd, right? So it's like, okay, cool. So I kind of came to ownership of that at the end, sort of at the tail end of my undergraduate degree and, and then towards the beginning of my master's studies. And so in my master's studies, well, I was like, well, if that's who I am, I'm a, I want to explore more about what that means. And then I did this deep dive into like, what, it, what do people get out of games? Why are they important? Why do they occupy the station in some people's lives that they do? Why do they perpetuate as a hobby for some people and not for others? And like, what utility do they have? And I think part of that just came from like a, from a background of, you know, if, as a kid, if you spend any time, any significant amount of time with any one activity, Adults will challenge you on whether or not it's a good use of your time. Ah, it's a waste of time. Why don't you go do this? It's like, ah, just stop wasting time with that. Go and learn how to build a house, you know, you know. And uh, that's good. That's all fine. Um, but uh, I, I always felt kind of intrinsically that there was some worth to games that wasn't explicitly stated. You never pick up a board game or a role-playing game and look on the back cover and it says, guaranteed to improve math functionality by 28%. You know, like guaranteed to like improve your social standing in your, in your, in the situation that you live in. Like, like how do you, how would you deliver on a guarantee like that? But the more I went through my master's studies, the more I, I sort of came across uh, this cool archaeological, or not archaeological, sociological research that came out of the 70s and 80s that basically said exactly that. That was like, well, with tabletop role-playing games specifically, and more than any other type of game, there's a whole series of, a whole wealth of skills that you can learn and practice while you're in the game that you take with you when you're finished and that you can then just use in your real life. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, we've already sort of talked about, there's the, the idea that I speak more confidently than I than I think I would if I hadn't had that same exposure to the types of games that I played. Or even just the way that I think, you know, how quickly or slowly sometimes I can put together an idea in my mind and say it out loud. Um, I'll say right now, the reason I talk and talk and talk and talk is because I grew up playing games where that's what you did. You talk and talk and talk and talk. And so uh, 
right now, I'm in a place where if somebody asks me a question about something that I'm in, that I'm really interested in or invested in, man, I will go on and on and on because as a storyteller, that's if that's what you've practiced doing your whole life, then that's what you know how to do. And so that became like a big part of my master's studies was kind of looking into that window of what utility games can have or do have and what that can mean for you know kids and adults, right? I was very interested in the rap utopia because, it, and I'll let you do the background on it. Sure. And it kind of explained, but what I'm curious about is in today, how it relates to today's society versus the rap utopia and what the function of a role playing game provides that is similar to the rap utopia. Yeah. Okay. So we're going all the way back to like the 1960s where a guy named John B. Calhoun did some research for the National Institute of Mental Health in the United States. So it's a United States organization and he's got some funding to do some research into human sociology. And he's interested in, you know, how, what, what enriches our lives, what gives us like a good quality, like a good standard of living, quality of life. Um, these are the types of things that he's thinking about. But what he's specifically thinking about is that in regards to sociology, how we engage with each other and how we're in our interconnectedness as human beings and brothers and sisters and a family of humans uh, on planet Earth, how that's sort of necessary to um, uh, like a stable society, really. And so what he did was he took a bunch of rats and he did this experiment multiple times. So there's actually a few different iterations of it. And there's not write-ups that, that I've been able to find on every iteration of it. But we know that he did it multiple times. We know that he did it with rats. And we, all, we know that he also did it at least once with mice. And he would make a big boxed-in space. And inside that space, he would put uh, everything that a rat needs for a comfortable life in infinite qualities, or qu quantities, pardon me. And so infinite water, infinite food, infinite um, like nesting material. Those were kind of the three main ones, but like basically anything that they want. So he, he doesn't just dump it all in at once. He dumps in as much as they want. And then once they start to use it, then they just kind of refill the kind of station so they can, there's always infinitely free accessible resources for these rats to use. And then he dumped in, you know, six or eight or 10 pairs of, of rodents. And basically all he was tracking the whole, uh, experiment was just tracking population growth and then like they would make notes about behaviors. So if there's any like significant behavioral changes, then that was kind of important to track too. So uh, the, what you'd expect from that sort of environment or what I would expect going into reading about that, uh, that those experiments was if you were going to draw a graph of what the population looked like, then you'd think, well, it's probably going to go up exponentially. They've got infinite food, they've got infinite nesting material, they've got nothing else to do, they're gonna do what rats do and that's gonna be breed. Uh, but acknowledging that there's the, the only finite limitation on their resources is space, then you could probably expect the amount of breeding to kind of taper off at a certain point. So it'd shoot up really quickly and then it'd sort of kind of find a plateau and probably just more or less stay there because it sounds pretty sustainable, right? Got all the resources you need except for space. So once you've got the maximum kind of ideal number of rodents in that space, then it's gonna just kind of stay there. Well, what happened instead was the population shot off just the way that you'd expect it to, and then it became, began to deteriorate and decline 
really quickly to the extent that um, within just a few generations of the peak uh, population, uh, the entire population went extinct. Literally, there were no live rodents left in the space. So, of course, John B. Calhoun's sitting there going, well, why would that be? And I think any of us sitting here would be like, yeah, why is that? Turns out, rodents have like a really simplistic society. And in that society, there are roles or like uh, just positions to fill. And so when the initial rats were dropped into the space, they would, you know, there'd be the tough rat and there'd be like the sexy rat. And there'd be, I don't know what kind of rats there are, but there'd be these rats, the jock rat and goth rat. I don't know. And, uh, and so once those roles were sort of filled though, when new rats were born into the space, there wasn't anywhere for them to go of significance. There wasn't anything for them to do, no role for them to enact, no, nothing to give their existence function or purpose. And so void of that purpose, purpose they would just sit around and not do anything. And um, you know, you can only do that for so many generations before your sort of genetic memory and instinct to do the things like fill positions uh, starts to go away. So what happened was the initial rats that were put in there would die and then the new rats that didn't have any practice filling those positions would be like, well, I don't know how to do that, so I'm not gonna. And then they just kept sitting around and they would die too. And then, and then you know, two or three generations later, you have rats that don't know how to do the things at all. No, they've never even seen it done that a rat would live this way or do this thing. And so they, it was really interesting. They stopped fighting. They would stop like wrestling with each other and fighting each other they would stop, um, eventually they stopped breeding entirely. And what I thought was interesting about it was they'd sit around endlessly cleaning themselves. So they'd preen and preen and preen and preen. And then, but for what? They, like, they weren't even preening to attract a mate. They were just preening because that was the only part of their genetic memory or their instinct that was left in terms of like dictating their behavior. It's the only thing they knew how to do was just make themselves as beautiful as possible for nobody. Super weird. And then of course, you know, if they stop breeding, then they stop, then they don't have new rats and then the population dies out completely. And so they repeated this experiment like a number of times. And I think going through the literature, it seems like there was maybe a couple, at least a couple of times where there was some problematic things that happened where like maybe the, maybe the rat enclosure wasn't cleaned out often enough in one of them or like other, other things. So I, I don't think that it's a, it's a complete and total summary of of like what human civilization can and should be because the experiment might not be perfect or the execution of it might not be perfect. But people saw that experiment and they heard about it and read about it and totally ran with it because in the breakdown for the experiment, sort of what, um, sort of what John B. Calhoun concluded at was that essentially, you know, we need space, we need things to do to give our lives meaning just like rats do. And as soon as we run out of space uh, to explore and new things to find, then humanity is going to basically just do the same thing. And it's funny to note that he said that with a degree of optimism because the first step to finding a solution to a problem is identifying the problem. And that's what he felt like he was doing. So he finished his research or that stage of his research and he was really excited. He's like, you know, this is something that we know about rat behavior for sure that we can probably apply to human behavior and brace for it and figure out a way around it because we are going to run out of space. We got a lot of it compared to a little eight by eight rat enclosure, but like, you know, finite space, 
finite resources. And, uh, and so he started to, to, to think about that in that direction. But meanwhile, the public is going this whole other direction. And you, you'd, there was all kinds of like weird graffiti that popped up that was related to his work and people that wrote weird doomsday comics and stuff that were related to his work. And uh, just people that were really like fixated on this idea that like, oh, humanity is gonna implode. Human society is gonna totally implode because we, uh, because we're gonna run out of space. We're gonna run out of things to explore and things to do. And significantly in, in one of the, it was a Q and A, I think, after the, the write up to one of his experiments, one of the professors basically just asked him, or one of the people evaluating his work just asked him like if that's what he thinks humanity was geared towards. And he's like, well, humanity is a little bit different than rats and in one significant way, uh, which is our ability to create our own conceptual space. Um, that once we run out of physical space to explore, there's still all kinds of other avenues of knowledge for us to think about and problems to work through. So whether it's music or math or art or science, there's a million things that we can explore in the conceptual sense uh, without having to have like a new continent to go to. And, um, and he says that's gonna be the saving grace of humanity is our, our ability to just explore the innermost recesses of our own minds, our own imaginations, whether it's with something really utilitarian like a scientific evaluation of some other part of the world uh, or like some genus of butterfly in South Africa or whether it's our ability to create new uh, conceptual space to explore like that's in the abstract like music or art uh, or in this case you know right now we're talking about games and so I think that that's something that I fixated on really quickly that you know his research besides the fact that it's super interesting has a direct relation to the idea that games have something to offer us as, as people, something that can serve a psychological utility. And so putting that into the game context of, so what do games provide humans in theory, if you compare it to the rat utopia, specifically uh, role-playing games of like, how do, how are they able to enact? And then I can't help but draw conclusions. You tell me if I'm wrong on this, but nerds, that are in basements that might not have the fulfillment of being the jock or playing one of those roles out in real world. And I can't help but draw the conclusion of those rats that uh, are able to fulfill those fantasies of what they would like to be and learn those skills without actually... Without having the direct experience, lived experience, right? Yeah, well, that's exactly it, right? Is that, um, you know, they say that... that Smart people learn from experiences. Wise people can learn from the experiences of others. And then we're taking that a step further and we're saying, well, gamers can learn from experiences that they've synthesized themselves. You create your own scenario, you play through the scenario, try to enact and think out like what it is you would do in, in that scenario. And you can learn just through this sort of thought experimentation. And so, you know, I think that the, the benefit of any game, any game, uh, that, that brings people together is that it provides uh, a really approachable, understandable context for a social interaction. And to the extent that like they say that um, for people that uh, fall somewhere on the autism spectrum, that they, uh, that you can sort of bridge that gap a little bit by introducing them to a game that, that gives them some kind of social interaction with somebody. So 
you know, let's say you're like a really severely autistic, but you really like chess. Well, now here's an interaction that you can have with somebody because you understand the rules of engagement. And uh, extrapolating that even further, you know, the, the more complex the game in terms of interchange of ideas, the more rewarding the social interaction becomes. So if we're talking about uh, role-playing games specifically, there's a whole bunch of research uh, most notably conducted by a guy named Gary Allen Fine, the, sort of a decade after John B. Calhoun would have been kicking around, where he wanted to look at, well, what is the impact just mentally of pe on people that, that play role-playing games you know, on a regular basis? And this was springing out of uh, what's, what's referred to now as the satanic panic. So back in the, you know, especially in the 80s and 90s, um, there was a lot of, Christian groups or like parent groups and, and things that got on board with this idea that games that related to magic or uh, fantasy were somehow related to the occult and that they were being used by supernatural forces to indoctrinate and corrupt the youth of America and Canada and everywhere else. And so just, you know, growing up when I grew up, I, you know, I was too young to, to like be kicking around the game, uh, the gaming world uh, at the height of that satanic panic. But I remember when I was like, you know, grade four, grade five, uh, I had like a, some magic cards that somebody had, like my friend's older brother had given me and uh, they're all commons, like useless cards. And my mom made me get rid of them because she had heard and was worried that like, oh, does this, is this like tarot cards? Is it like, is it somehow like corrupting my son? And she made me get rid of them. And I remember being like, mom, that's stupid. It's a game. And she, she didn't get it. And she didn't have an access point as a parent to understand anything more than what they were saying on the news or in like, what was that terrible Tom Hanks movie? Um, Mazes and Monsters. Yeah, Mazes and Monsters. She, I remember when I first started playing role-playing games, she was, she was very cautious, but was not willing to like, she didn't want to like kick me. She was like, she saw that I was getting something out of it with my friends. And she was like, well, don't not do it be aware of the risks. And so she made me sit down and watch Mazes and Monsters. Um, and, and then at the end of the movie, like it was such a serious thing. We had this talk about like, if you ever get to a point where you can no longer discern between reality and fiction, that's when it's time to call it. And I said, fair enough. That sounds good to me. I can agree to that. I was only like 12 years old at that point, but uh, I, was, I was happy to agree to that. And she let me continue playing with my friends. And, uh, and eventually I bought back into magic too. And I played that throughout junior high, high school as well. And she, she warmed up to that once she understood more about it. But at the time it was a brand new game type. And so there, you couldn't relate it to Monopoly or anything else that she was familiar with, right? So yeah, so I forget where the question was, but that's, ask it again if you need to, because I don't uh, think I answered whatever you asked. Well, I mean, I think you answered it, but I like, it's such an interesting subject. Like why, you know, there's so many different angles to it as far as like and i can't help but like you could uh extrapolate it to even like broader society and go uh as an example like and i like i don't want to get into dicey areas but like universal basic income sure but when people have universal basic income then what happens to them socially right does it enable them or does it become a, does it have a crippling effect in the long term and you know i think there's a lot of research left to be done on that i think that ultimately there, there are obvious dangers 
but I'm I'm definitely not the I haven't analyzed any of the data enough to like provide any real commentary on that. But I will say that you know going back to the the research that Gary Allen Fine did was you know he wanted to look at you know the idea that uh, that games were corrupting the youth uh, and what effect those games have on the mind specifically. And so he's like, cool. Well, I'm not that type of research necessarily. I'm not a psychologist, but he's like, well, I am a sociologist. And so I can do, I can sit on a bunch of game sessions and take notes and interview people and have all kinds of things and kind of record what the impact is over a number of years on people that game frequently. And so his, I think that for the majority of his research, he was focused on people that gamed on average once a week. So sat down for a game session for D&D or whatever else, any other game system, at least once a week. And he put together a treatise that just goes through, you know, ultimately the, the wealth of skills that can come out of a gaming experience like that. And he broke it down to like, you know, your ability to, to synthesize information, to uh, do uh, like quick statistics and mathematics because of all the sort of evaluation that you have to do for dice rolls. Do I want to make that dice roll or this dice roll? Like which skill do I want to use? Um, so mathematics... Um, empathy became a huge one. And that's the one that I think is maybe the most related to like John B. Calhoun's research is that, is that empathy is, is you know, I, I, it is a skill. I refer to it as a skill because I think it's something that can be learned and that some people do well and that some people do poorly. In the generic sense, empathy is just the idea that we can connect to someone else enough to have access to what they might think or might feel. And, but in Gary Allen Fine's research, it, it sort of, I don't know if he went really any further than that, but it, it definitely highlighted empathy as something that can be learned and that can be learned better or worse. Because if you're playing in a group and let's say you've got the, the person that's leading the game, the game master or dungeon master, and then you have like two or three other players playing with you, you know, it is a team game. You're, and it's, the, the game is creating a compelling story. And so you have to be aware of what compelling means and that, the, and that the idea of what compelling is might mean something different to the person that's telling the story or the person sitting next to you that has a different type of character than you. And, and you know, when you're, when you're 9 and 10 and 12 years old, all you really care about is like who, who gets to slay the dragon, who gets the biggest, coolest sword in the treasure pile. And like, you know, and it be, it's, I think it starts out as something that's kind of inherently competitive. But the more you play the more you realize that what creates a rewarding, enriching gaming experience, not just for you, but for everybody that's playing with you, is true cooperation. And you can't anticipate what other people need in order to have that really good experience without having a level of empathy that allows you to, to sort of intuit what they're thinking and what they're, what they're feeling, what they're, what they're gearing towards. And so, and so it really becomes like a group-driven Thing. And I think that once you hit your stride with that, if you have a group of people that you, that you play with the most consistent, consistently, once you hit your stride where you're all kind of moving together in that direction, that's when games have real impact. I think that for anybody that plays role-playing games growing up and then falls out of it, it's either because they got something else going on in their life that just replaced it entirely, or it's because they never got to that moment where it was, they were getting the most benefit out of it. Because that's, that's what I think links people together is having empathy and having understanding. And then, like I say, that, that empathy, that understanding 
comes with you when you step outside the game. You finish the game and you can still understand those people. You can still read them. You can still feel what they feel. And so let's say you go to school together, which, you know, in my case, that's what we did. We would play and then we'd go to school together. And so you have all these other social experiences together and you're like, oh, this happened today at school. That might've been hard for him. That might've been really, that might've been really difficult or like, oh, this happened and he might be really excited. And so you can feed off of or make up for the, the excitements or the disappointments in someone else's life. And then of course that enriches your life, right? And so, and so we talk about games and role-playing games, especially as something that, like I say, a lot of Christian groups uh, and religious groups were like really terrified of in the 80, early 80s. And, and that over time it's proven to have kind of the exact opposite effect, which is to create people that are better at being people. You know, we talk about the rats that forgot how to be rats. Well, if we have a, a method by which we can teach people how to be better people, and it's, a, and it's a method that they want to engage with. We're not giving anybody homework here to say, go home and play six hours of fantasy role-playing games. But if it's something that they want to engage with, then they're gonna learn skills and they're gonna take those skills with them in real life. And I think that that's like a huge boon that was, would have been impossible to predict. Gary Gygax never thought that. Kevin Ciambietta never thought that when they, when they wrote their games. Any of the other people, any of the other great creators that have sat down and penned a, penned a role-playing game or any other, other type of game, I don't think came forward with that level of ambition. I'm gonna fix humanity. I'm gonna create a game that's just gonna like really fix everything for everyone. You know, that's not the point, but it's a serendipitous truth that we, we ended up there, I think. One of the other interesting things uh, about your paper was the immersion and the shared construct of the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you can elaborate upon that because I mean, without that, you wouldn't achieve the uh, uh, fantasy that provides that. For sure, yeah. I mean, so, I, and I talk about that a lot in my thesis in, in two directions because the, the, the research that I did wasn't just highlighting the possible effects of gaming. Um, it was also relating that to other, um, to other social constructs that we've had for generations that I feel fulfill that same sort of purpose. And so what I wrote about in my thesis was a sort of a comparison between role-playing games specifically as a game type that encourages and engages people in social behavior and gifts them a skill set if they play well uh, or play with intent uh, and I compared that to religion, which I think uh, for organized religion specifically, not just like a general sense of spirituality, there's a, a similar level of kind of mythos embedded in, in any religion. And I don't say that in, the, in a diminutive sense, I'm a religious person and, and, and I just mean that in the broadest general sense that, that if you're gonna learn about you know, a God that you truly believe in, um, or you're going to do some research into a pantheon of gods that exist in the world in which you play, uh, those two things aren't the same, but they have a relationship. And that relationship is you're, you're, learning, uh, you're learning in conceptual space. You're, you're learning through a world that you can't visibly see, that you can't tangibly touch. Um, I don't live in a world where I interact with supernatural beings on, the, on a daily basis. I don't think any of us do. Um, but the idea that you would have something to learn by reading a book that's 2,000 years old or, or you know, maybe a little less old than that, um, or, or by reading a role-playing book that just talks about pretend things that pretend to be ancient 
you know, that, that depending on how one or the other is written, you might be able to get a, a great deal of knowledge out of that sort of thing. And so here's what I'm not doing. I'm not comparing uh, the main D&D player's handbook to the Bible. Not doing that. But what I am saying is, is that uh, the social construct provided by religious organizations gives you a routine where you meet together once a week, where you engage in social interactions with other people that are operating under the same pretense, which is that God exists, um, he reveals truth to man, and then men are meant to live in accordance with uh, the rules that God sets for them. And, um, and, and pretense, again, in the non-diminutive sense. It's just a thing that we're willing to accept. And so in my thesis, I talked about the difference or similarity between pretend and believe. And in what way are those two things really logically different? I think that in each case, you're, you accept that something is the case and you're willing to enact actions and ideas and thoughts and beliefs uh, as though such were the case. I'm going I'm to act through my life as though God exists and I guess for most of us hope that at the end he does. And, and then, you know, for the, for the function of a game, you act as though you are the character that you are, that you've, that you've written or ruled. You, you act as though you live in a world that bears no resemblance to the world that you actually live in, but it's you're pretending. And so you, and so you go down this line. And so religion, like um, fantasy role-playing games, whether it's like fantasy or science fiction or anything else, gives you a, gives you a context through which you can engage with other people. And that um, maybe you don't have a whole lot in common with those other people, except for the game that you're playing, whether that game is a game or a religious interaction. And, and so that gives you a, a context through which you can have those social experiences and you can say, you, you can theorize, you know, and try to fill gaps and holes in your understanding together and learn from each other and, and sort through abstract ideas together and, and like come to sort of, you know, in religion they say coming to a unity of faith and I'd say the same concept applies to playing games that same way as you come to the unity that I described when you kind of hit that stride where you're all understanding and feeling together. Like that's a cool moment. That's a really great moment um, when you feel the stories progressing the way that you all intend together. And uh, yeah, and so the the idea that religion or spirituality can be related to gaming, you know, ultimately just kind of wraps back to the idea of you know like Carl Jung talked about a collective unconscious, the idea that not not this mystical idea of an unconscious that we all mystically have access to but but some something that evolved through years and years and years of 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 like thousands and millions of years of human evolution we have the genetic memory or the instinct that we talk about in reference to the rodent experiments but that that instinct inherently has um needs that we, we need to feel fulfilled. And where do we find fulfillment or how do we find fulfillment uh, is a thing that's definitely up for debate, but ultimately uh, social interaction is a huge part of that. And so we create humanity in every eon, in every instance throughout the world has created context through which to create meaningful social experiences with one another. And, and so I think that where role-playing games come from comes from the same sort of inherent instinctual need to connect that that drives the development of 
religious organizations or any other type of organization that, that fulfills that kind of purpose. I can't, we probably won't include ever this part. Yeah. But I mean, all that's good. Honestly, there's there's lots of talk. This next part that I'm going to ask you. So the preening, do you think that's like the equivalent of uh, social media selfies? And Man, I could go off, like we could do a whole second documentary about like the impact of John B. Calhoun's experiments 40, 50 years before the advent of social media. Uh, I, th I think so 100%. I think that it's I think that it's a, a lot more than that. Like besides just like preening in the sense that like uh, you're you make yourself beautiful, but then you but then it's like for it's for yourself more than for anybody else. It's this sort of narcissistic like I'm beautiful kind of thing. It's all I know how to do, and then that's how, so that's all how I spend my time. But I think it's also just like you know self development without. A direction or like a goal in mind uh, can often kind of feel that same way, and I, I say that's like I'm now we're going like way hypothetical here because I, I don't know the true implications of what I'm saying, um, and I definitely haven't overthought any of these ideas. But I think that like if if what you're doing, the end goal or the the motivating factor behind it, if it's vanity, you're setting yourself up to get the least amount of impact from that activity. So we talked a little bit already about like uh, role-playing games and how when you start, when you're like 10 or 11 or 12, you just want the biggest sword. You just want to be the one that gets the killing blow on the black dragon in the cave, right? And that's what you're about. And because it is, it's vanity. You, you're excited because what you can do and like what you're going to accomplish. And, you, you know, over time, I think that that vanity is cut in half by empathy because if you can get to the point where you want your friend to exceed your ability or, or not necessarily exceed but if you want them to be as successful as they can be and you want to help them to be as success as successful as they can be then that might sometimes come at the cost of your success if that's how you're measuring success you might not get the killing blow on the dragon but guess what you might be a wizard that's out of spell points and he might have the biggest sword so if you have three spell points left and you can cast fireball then that might not be as good as using those three spell points to like cast a killer spell on his sword that's gonna make him do like triple quadruple damage, right? And so it's like, that's how you have to start thinking about the world is what can I do to advance us all forward, right? And so, and so coming back to the whole shtick about vanity and like our motivations for engaging in activity, if I'm just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get up every morning at 6 a.m. and I'm gonna run, that's good. No one's saying that's bad. I'm not the guy that does that, but like that's that's a good thing to do. You're going to take care of your body. You're going to, you know, set yourself up for probably a, a healthier lifestyle and you're going to have a lot of fewer aches and pains hopefully when you're 65 than you would otherwise. So, all kinds of good reasons to do that. But if the only reason you're doing that is because you want to be like trim and fit and like look a certain way, then ultimately like your mental state is going to reflect that. And you're gonna grow in your narcissism through that experience. And it's gonna, it's not gonna be about being healthy. And then maybe, what if you start overrunning? What if you start overexerting yourself and you start running to an extent that it deteriorates your body because you want so badly to, to look a certain way? Well, then you've actually impacted your life negatively with something that's meant to be healthful, right? And so, you know, I think that there's, 
there's an apparent danger in that. And I think that what John B. Calhoun was talking about ultimately, or I don't know if it's what he conceptualized or thought about, but I think that the results of his experiments have that logical conclusion that, that it's not just the superficial idea that en endlessly taking selfies and trying to look good for Instagram is a poor way to spend your life. It's more that the, the mental state that that produces is gonna impact every other area of your life. That, um, that if that's the only place that you can find meaning is by looking at yourself, then you, you, you destroy the opportunity to evaluate the world through another person's lens. And, and what I'm saying is that I think that's where a lot of meaning really comes from, is trying to learn how other people think and feel because it allows us to work together and move up as a group. And so, yeah, I think it's tricky, but I think there's an obviously obvious implication for social media. I think there's an obvious implication for like, um, even just the way that we um, create fixtures of ourselves that like, you know, I'm not sure how to say that, I guess, that like, when I die, what's left? It, if it's 400 hours of YouTube videos of me talking about how to perform tasks or learn skills or do anything specific, uh, that might be something that's like an interesting legacy to leave behind. If it's a catalog of music that someone's created, what a gift to the world or art or uh, literature, right? Things that we can contribute that, um, that can help elevate the human experience. And, and like, you know, maybe 90% or 98% of what we put out into the world won't ever be seen by anybody. But if we try really hard and make things as best we can, eventually we're gonna find a way to create something that will strike a chord with somebody else and, and, and have an impact. And I think that that's what people wanna have uh, innately. I think they, they wanna be able to benefit other people. And I think that that's where social media falls short, short is that it's, it's trying to be the best that you can be in the most superficial way possible. I wanna look the best that I can look. I wanna post inspiring quotes that are vaguely, you know, nonsensical sometimes, right? Um, but like, at the end of the day, if, if what you have left is, you know, you die and you've got like 400 million tweets and like a good number of Instagram selfies, I think you can argue that there's, that's maybe a poor legacy to leave behind because it can't help anybody. It wasn't for them, it was for you all along. And I think that that's, I don't know if, John, John B. Calhoun I think is deceased, but I think if he were alive now, he'd be like, man, I was talking about this like four years ago. Why didn't nobody listen to me? But. Yeah, so kind of circling in on that, the popularity of role-playing games in popular culture and when I think about why I'm older than you, and so when I grew up, you spoke of D&D &D and hushed tones, uh, as I mentioned before, and now it's kind of become popular. Do you see a correlation between the popularity of role-playing games and that need uh, for the immersion and the self-fulfillment through fantasy role-playing games? Like, do you think they're lockstep, or do you think it was just a happenstance of Stranger Things and Harry Potter hit, or both? That is a hard question to answer. Obviously, there's a correlation. Correlation is not causation. So we don't know that one 
caused the other, the, the, the inevitable downfall of human society has resulted in a generation that's more interested in playing those types of games. We don't know that. Or at least I don't know that. Someone might have done the research and they feel like they know that. Um, I think that, um, I do think that it's maybe like a, a step up above serendipity though. I think that, um, I guess when I've thought about it most commonly, I think about uh, increased secularization, um, which has happened at this sort of a similar pace as uh, increased in like digital uh, advancements, right? So, you know, there's a statistic that came out a few years ago about, about the, the number of interactions that you have with any other people in a given day. The majority of those interactions is now digital. And at some point in human history, that switched, right? It, you know, there wasn't always the case that the most, the, the most social interactions you had uh, were through a device, right? So whether it's through social media or emails or phone calls, um, most of your interactions at one point were face-to-face. -face. And I think that when I was a kid and probably when you were a kid, that was probably the case. You probably had a couple of phone calls in the evening uh, on some days, um, but some days you probably wouldn't use the phone at all. Whereas now, like, it, you would be hard-pressed to find somebody in your immediate social group that doesn't do something with their phone or engage with somebody on their phone, whether it's through social media or a phone call or a text, every single day or multiple times a day. I would say most cases, many, many times a day. Um, but the problem with that is that the nature of those social interactions becomes more and more superficial. And so we're left with, I think, uh, I think a group, like a generation of people that has a different sociality than the one that we grew up with. And I think that the generational differences between, you know, our generation and, and you know, our parents or our grandparents is, I think we can look at that and say, well, that's pretty profound. I, my grandparents remember when they got electricity to the farm, you know, and here I am, like, I remember when I got my first 486 and we had like a two megabyte hard drive and thought that was pretty wild. And now, you know, we're launching stuff into space and, you know, having all the billionaires are racing to see who can get to Mars first and whatever else is going on. And so it's like the world has changed a lot and it's hard to, to really pinpoint the degree to which those changes are positive or negative, but it's easy to acknowledge the generation growing up now is growing up different than we grew up. And does that give them a greater draw or a or a greater interest in things like role-playing games or board games or any other type of social game. I don't know that. I don't know that for sure. But there are more use cases. There's more, there's, there's more obvious application because now the research has been done that says, hey, these games can help people. So that's already something that we can say. And we can say with a, a fair degree of certainty that on, on average, the average person that's struggling socially, if they, if they play a game like this on a, on a semi-frequent basis for even a few years, that that will impact the rest of their life. So now that we can say that, I know a psychologist in Utah, and he, he doesn't prescribe, but he encourages some of his uh, patients to go and play. Because here's, here's a thing that can help with the struggle that you're having. Right? So we already know there's more use cases for it because we can, we can say, hey, this is something that we, we see can come out of it. Um, but the thing is, the, the, what makes it difficult to say yes to that question, is it increased secularization or is it increased um, 
digital advancement that's that's propelling the popularity of gaming forward. I think it's hard to say that because the other thing that's propelling it forward is now more than ever, there are hundreds and thousands of creators all over the world that are connected through these digital mediums that we're talking about and have all the spare time in the world because they're also not going to church that they can dedicate their time to that sort of thing. And so that means that we have hundreds and thousands of games that are created and then the ones that are the best games are more exciting, are more immersive, are more um, approachable in some cases than games that we had in the 80s and 90s, right? Like you might've been really interested in fantasy when you were a kid, but if the people that you knew in your high school that played Dungeons and Dragons were too weird, then you might've been just like, oh, well, I just really like Tolkien or I really like C.S. Lewis, but that's not for me. Right? Because there was really only one or two avenues to pursue. But now it's like, well, let's say you don't like fantasy. Let's say you like science fiction. Boom, there's a world for that. There's a game for that. Well, maybe you don't like that. Maybe you like steampunk. Cool, that's fine. We got those. What if you just really love Star Wars? You can do that too. Right? So now we have games that can appeal to any specific niche that can uh, provide varying degrees of complexity to the rule set to appeal to the broadest audience possible. And then we also have generations of the same game that, that again, may, might appeal to different demographics, right? It's not very many people you find these days playing AD&D because that was a weird rule set. Like, good job, you know, they did it and it worked, but, and it propelled everything forward, but so help me, it's an impossible game system to play and to learn. Like, you have to have somebody that knows it to teach it to you. And that's, and especially with like, even before AD&D with the original like Redbox days, like that, that was the case. Like you, the rules were incomprehensible in the original version of D&D, unless you had someone to really explain them. And so a lot of it was making up the game as much as it was making up the story that you were playing. So we've got past that now. They say D&D 5e is like the most streamlined edition of that game. And I agree with that because they've gone through these iterations of, well, what actually works for people? What do people like about the game? And you have to create something that appeals to like the really mathematically minded min-maxers that are trying to like figure out the best combination of skills and strategy to like take out everything that they run into. And you also have to write something that can appeal to the people who really just like compelling stories and compelling characters. And so you have to create a system that slims everything down into like one or two little books and then some supplemental material, you know. And they'll endlessly come out with supplemental material. But yeah, I think that the biggest impact on why things got popular the way that they have has more to do with um, the wealth of good games available, of well-written uh, games that have like good artwork associated with them and like you know, lots of creative strategy behind them and better marketing, you know? And then besides that, the other, the other boon to the gaming industry or part of what drives that is that you have the generation of people like you and me that grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s playing these games that they grew up and they were like, hey, now that I'm in charge, what can I make that's gonna to contribute to this and make it better and, and, do, and do things? And so I think, you know, role-playing games, maybe more than any other type of gaming has like really evolved, like trackably over just a few decades. And for it to be a type of game that had its start so late in human history, it's really interesting to be able to look at the back of that now and say, you know, 400 years from now, there's gonna be archaeological ancient studies in, in, you know, assuming the world's not burnt to a crisp or flooded by then, um, that there's going to be university classes about the dawn of 
role-playing gaming. They'll be talking about you and me, and they'll probably pull this documentary up and watch it in class. Uh, and kind of the last question is on a kind of weird tangent, but I can't help but always think of it, is in today's world, a lot of uh, the demographic, especially in 5e, I've noticed myself just like being online and stuff, is a lot of like queer and transgender uh, individuals. And I think of that as like, you know, in, in their circumstances, they probably don't feel like they fit in and I can't help but go, okay, in the 70s and 80s, maybe it was the nerd that didn't fit in, but now nerdism has kind of become pop culture, but it's like an explosive growth area for them. And then I can't think of, I can't help but draw the connection of social construct of like, they get to fulfill their fantasies that they might not be able to in real life um, through role-playing games. And exactly. Very similar path, but maybe just later. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, that's exactly the point, right? Is that you're living through experiences that are different than your real world experiences. So in the course of a human lifetime, you can live through four or five or six different lifetimes of characters that have completely different attributes than you. And, and you know, you talk about like the relationships like queer and transgender people specifically. Um, obviously there's an opportunity there for people to create a world in which they can interact with their peers where nobody's looking down on them. Like we, coming from the background that I grew up in, it's like we talked about fantasy as just some, something cool and new to explore. And we didn't think about the utility that it served. But now you have like queer and transgender folk that can create worlds that align with just their, their lived experience and their perspective on the world. And what an opportunity that, that must be to be able to imagine a world and live through experiences in which you're not ostracized for something that you feel. And like, how tragic is it that that's necessary, but how great is it that there's the avenue for that, right? I think that, you know, I. I think that about that sort of thing a lot because I have uh, family members that um, that are gamers and that also uh, are, are part of those demographics. And to think about the impact that that must have, it's really hard for me to, to totally under, not understand. It's hard for me to contribute anything towards that because I'm a cis white male between the ages of 20, 25 and 36 and you know, and here I am uh, in like the easiest demographic to live. Uh, and, and so I have tried to encourage that and tr like I've given my, uh, those family members, I've given them like resources and books and dice and all kinds of things to help, you know, get them started. But it's really hard for me to know how best to support that other than just sort of like helping where I can and then stepping away and just watching them do it themselves. Um, because ultimately it's like, it's a world they get to be in charge of when, when in their real life the rest of the world is kind of trying to be in charge of them. Be like, you can't feel that. You can't think that. And that's, that's difficult, man. I don't envy anybody that's in a position like that. But, you know, one of the things that I looked at in my thesis was I talked a, a little bit about, um, or actually, I guess I'm, I'm, I looked at it in my research. I'm not sure I really touched on it too much in my thesis was like uh, suicidality among men and the, the rate at which suicidality and suicidal, suicidal ideation uh, incre is increasingly common among men of a certain demographic, uh, especially sort of towards middle age. Um, oh, and then compared with, with women of the same age, like the, the rates of suicidality are like sometimes triple. That's a scary statistic to know about. Um, but it's one of the things that I feel like in, in cases like that, I, 
it's hard to know all of the all of the components at play in anybody's life that is that level of difficult. But I think that I can say with a with a reasonable degree of certainty that anybody that's struggling with with those types of, of issues, with those types of mental health issues, can be benefited by an increased level of support from the people around them. If you if you truly feel that other people love and accept you, that's going to be that's going to be beneficial. You might still you will still have problems. Life's going to be hard. Life is hard for everybody. But 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 if you have a mental health issue or if you um, are part of a demographic that that doesn't feel accepted by the majority of the world at large. Um, you're still going to have difficult issues. But if at the end of the day you can look around you and you can see people in your peer group and you can see people in your family and you can feel the level of connection that they have to you and you can know that they love you and you don't question that, that's going to be a support. That's going to be a real thing. And, and like, I'm not here to represent the idea that gaming can totally fix that uh, or, or do that for everybody. But what I am saying is I think that gaming can facilitate that for lots of people. And, and at the end of the day, I think if you, if, if you know anyone that, that has that level of struggle in their life, I don't think that the response is, hey, do you want to come play D&D with me? But it might be. Um, but ultimately, I think that supporting someone does start with the question, do you want to come and do something with me? I'd like to come and do something with you. And, uh, and, you know, games are just the construct by which we engage. That's all they've ever really been. And I, th I do think a little bit about the idea of gaming and role-playing gaming specifically in, in relation to the, uh, the concept of like uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces, right? So we're talking about the hero's journey and there's a call to adventure. And you, you want to that called adventure might come from any number of sources, but for in our real lives, the introduction to or the invitation to come and play with your friends is often our earliest experience with that call to adventure. And to come and play in a mystical realm of fantasy or science fiction or whatever it is, is this real, you're living your own hero's journey. You're the hero of your story. And we get calls to adventure every day that we either accept or ignore. And, you know, they might be real calls to adventure, like real in the sense that they impact your, your everyday real life, or they might be play calls to adventure where you pretend and you get together with friends and, and go through, whether it's sports or music or, or art or games or anything, something that you can do with somebody else. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like where games fit in that is they're not they're just the world in which you operate. They're just, they're just the context. The rest of it is you and other people. And, you know, here in Canada and North America, we have this really fortunate um, mentor of having a game store. You know, not, not everywhere, it's not everywhere in the world you can go and you're going to have the same type of game stores as we might have in Calgary, Alberta going down to the Century Box or going to the Ogre's Den or any of the other number of, of stores that we have in the city. But, but, you know, when Luke 
decided he didn't want to farm moisture anymore in the middle of a desert on Tatooine, he couldn't just get out of there. He would have been stuck there for the rest of his life, chilling on a moisture farm, boring a story in the world. But, you know, you get an Obi-Wan Kenobi come along and gives him a lightsaber, jumps on a spaceship and moves off into a whole new world of adventure. That's what I think gaming is. That's what I think uh, game stores kind of provide is that, you know, they're not the pinnacle moment of that adventure, but they're the Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, like they're the ones that give us that entrance point into something a little bit more fantastic. And, you know, then you walk away with your supernatural gift, which in this case is just a book. That's all it's ever been. It's just a book. And you take it home and you get to play with your friends. And, um, yeah, if, if there's any struggle that you're having in your real life, you can at least get away from it for a little while. It might not fix it, but you can get away from it for a little while. And I think that helps. I think that's important. I think that's a good way to end it. Cool, man. Gary, this is fun. I could talk to you for... Just keep asking me questions, man. I'll talk to you all night long.